If you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, we will be looking at 2 Corinthians 13, and I will read verses 11 through 14. Paul is ending his letter to the Corinthians. He's told them he would like to come and visit them soon, but here are his closing words as we read in the Holy Scriptures, 2 Corinthians 13, 11 through 14. And the concentration of our message this afternoon is going to be based on verse 14. Paul writes this way. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now that last verse, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, has been repeated by Christian ministers, I would say millions of times since this verse was written. Usually at the end of a church service, the preacher will raise his hands and he will give a blessing to the congregation. This blessing we call a benediction. It is a divine blessing. And usually when the preacher gives a divine blessing, he is quoting scripture. And this particular scripture has been quoted many, many times. Now, the idea of a benediction at the end of a service isn't prescribed in the New Testament. But when God gave instructions to Moses, when God gave instructions to Aaron, he did say, here's a blessing I want you to say when the people are in the house of the Lord hearing the word of God or they're done with a sacrifice and they're leaving, God told the people of Israel in Numbers 6, verse 22, 23, he says, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That was a blessing. It was a benediction. Paul ends each of his epistles with some words of blessing, with a benediction. And why would this particular benediction that we've just read been so widely used and repeated millions of times, I would say, at the end of services? And think about a religious service, such as what we're doing here this afternoon. We praise God during the service. We pray to God during the service. We read the scriptures during the service. We give offerings during services. We hear the word of God explained. We hear the word of God expounded. Sometimes we have sacraments during the service. And at the end of the service, after you have heard all these things, after you have participated in worship, you're getting ready to walk out of the door. It is appropriate for the preacher 
to give a benediction or a blessing upon the congregation that has just gone through worship. This particular benediction has been loved and used over many years. Commentators have written about it like this. They said it's a declaration of Christian privilege. It is a sum of Christian salvation. It is a lovely and meaningful prayer. It is a rich and comprehensive benediction. It is a statement of deep and important doctrine. This benediction in our Bible has only 23 words. This benediction, I can repeat it in less than 10 seconds. And if I speak really fast, I could fit it in five seconds. So why do we say this short phrase is so meaningful? I would say there's several reasons. And the first reason is this benediction clearly states a foundational doctrine that every single Christian believes in. And that is the doctrine of the Trinity. It mentions each person of the Trinity in one breath. There are not many verses in our Bible that mention each one in one verse. The other one that is very well known that you probably know by heart is the one that Jesus spoke to his disciples just before he ascended into heaven. In Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus said, Go, he says to his disciples, Therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Another verse where all three members of the Trinity are mentioned together. We could make a study of the Trinity, and we will find that Two of them are usually mentioned together, but not all three of them, often in a very short phrase. Let's take a little mini theological lesson. What do we mean by the Trinity? Why does every Christian say they believe in the Trinity? We believe that the Bible teaches there is one God, but that one God is made up of three persons. The person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Secondly, Christians believe that the three persons of the Trinity are co-eternal. They have existed since eternity past. They will exist in eternity future, there never was a time when the Trinity did not exist. All three persons of the Trinity have always been there. They are God. They are co-equal. One person of the Trinity is not superior to the other persons of the Trinity. The Father is not the head, and the Son and the Holy Spirit report to the Father. It's not like that. They are co-equal equal. They do everything together. They all know the same things. They plan the same things. No one person of the Trinity does anything by himself. Everything they do is together and with the knowledge of each other. 
even the way I'm trying to describe this relationship is not completely accurate. The Trinity is a mystery to us as Christians. We can't explain it. But the one thing I have to say is that each person in the Trinity is united to the other persons of the Trinity, and every single thing that they do is together. And they are the ones that are important to us. We as Christians believe that God has supplied all of our needs. There is not a single thing that we need that has not been provided to us by God. We have spiritual needs. God has provided for us. We have physical needs. God's creation is out there. He has provided for us. We have social needs. God has put us in places where we can have social interactions. God has supplied everything. And we could spend weeks and weeks looking in the Bible and showing you how God provides for every single aspect of our lives. The last thing I want to say about the Trinity in our quick little uh, theological lesson, Christians cannot know more about God than what he has revealed to us. How do we know about God? He's revealed to himself in his creation. He's revealed himself in the Bible. And he revealed us to himself when Jesus came down to this earth and lived. We are never going to learn any more about God than what he has let us know. We can't speculate, and I know there is much more to God than I can even imagine, but I'm not going to speculate because he doesn't allow us to speculate. God has given us what we need to know. Now let's say you're at home this afternoon reading in your living room. Hear a door knock. You go to the door and someone says, I'd like to invite you to a Bible study. You're saying, what kind of Bible study? Well, I'm a Jehovah Witness. You're a Jehovah Witness. Well, I'm a Christian, you might say. And when you say you're a Christian, they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. We believe in the Bible. Don't believe them. They only believe in God the Father, and they won't even call him that. They call him Jehovah. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are something else. They are lower than God, than Jehovah. Or you have a nice neighbor, very nice neighbors, and you go over and you talk to them and so on. They said, you should come to our church sometime. Oh, what church do you go to? It's a Mormon church. Well, I said, well, I go to a Christian church. Well, we're Christians, they might say, but don't go to their church. The Mormons believe in three gods, and then they believe in many gods. God the Father is a god, Jesus is a God, the Holy Spirit is a God, and if you live a really good life, you can be a God. When you study Mormon theology, they have the Trinity messed up. Make sure you understand what we mean by the Trinity. And so when we talk about this particular benediction, the doctrine of the Trinity is clearly expressed. But in our benediction, there's a second great doctrine that expressed. And this doctrine is a short summary 
of our salvation, especially the blessings of our salvation. And it's expressed in three words. The words are grace, which is attached to the Lord Jesus Christ. The word is love, which is attached to God, and it really means God the Father, the way that's written here. And it's attached to fellowship, which is fellowship in the Holy Spirit. And let's just, we're going to take a closer look at what each of these blessings is and what it means for a Christian. But you may have noticed that when you typically say who God is, a persons of God, you typically say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This doxology does not put it that way. It says Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit. It's different. So why would Paul have done this? Why would Paul have changed the order that we have in this particular uh, benediction? And what it is, is that this is the order of our salvation. We are saved through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because we are saved, we receive the love of the Father. And because we are saved and have the love of the Father, we have fellowship one with another and with our God through the Holy Spirit. So what do we mean about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Why is grace ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ? I could probably ascribe grace to God the Father, and I could ascribe grace to the Holy Spirit. But Paul, and I'm not going to blame it on Paul, but Paul, through the inspired word of God, has used this expression, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, often throughout all of his epistles. And he wrote 13 of them. And out of those 13, eight of them end with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And inside of each of the epistles, he mentions the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is Paul doing? Why does he mention this so often? Paul teaches that salvation comes through Jesus Christ. People are saved from lives of sin through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross where he died for sins. In this passage, Paul is using the word grace with a very broad meaning. If I ask you to look in the dictionary, what does grace mean? You might say, okay, unmerited favor. You made a mistake driving, you're driving too fast, you get hauled to court, the judge says, I'm gonna let you go this time. He gave you unmerited favor. He could have fined you a couple hundred dollars. He could have put points against your record, which would cause your insurance to go up. But he said, no, I'll forgive you. Unmerited favor. But Paul is saying, no, I'm talking about all of salvation. What has happened to you in redemption? We look at this illustrated in Romans 5. And if we look at verse 10, Paul says, you were enemies of God. 
Pastor Harrison mentioned that we are enemies of God if we're not a Christian. But then Paul says, we have been reconciled to God. And how did you get to be reconciled to God? By the death of his son. That's how we are reconciled to God. We were saved by his life. That's what he says in Romans. And what is the result of this? In verse 11, it says, we rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul has his own story to tell. Paul says, I was an unworthy recipient of God's grace. I was really bad, he said. I was horrible. I was against Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, if you were a Christian, you were once in the same position that Paul was in. You were against the Lord Jesus Christ. You were unworthy of God's grace. You didn't deserve any of God's grace. Even those people who said, I grew up in a Christian home. I have been good my whole life. I have followed holy living the best that I can. You are still unworthy of God's grace. And Paul insists that sinners are helpless. We cannot help ourselves. We can only get grace of God to be saved. Paul in one place writes, you are dead in sin. You are really dead. You're in the casket. You're in the ground. You're not coming back. But through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, he has made you alive. That's the thought that Paul is expressing. And we say, oh, well, maybe I could buy some grace. You can't buy grace. Even if you were the richest man out there and you took all your money and said, God, I want some grace from you. I want to spend eternity with you. I'll give all this money to you. <clears throat> Won't work. Say, God, I am going to live a perfect life of service to you for the rest of my life. Not good enough. The only way to get grace is to receive it as a free gift from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we pray, what do we say? Sometimes we use this expression, which comes from Hebrews. Let us draw near to the throne of grace, as it says in Hebrews 4, verse 16. And why do we go to the throne of grace? Hebrews tells us that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. It's very clear to us what grace does for us when we worship God. It, we read later in Hebrews 12, 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship through his grace with reverence and awe. And so Peter, when he was writing his letter, he says, let us grow in grace. And then he says 
in 2 Peter 3.18, and now grow in grace and knowledge of what? Of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't grace wonderful? When we say the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is just a wonderful thing. When the pastor raises his hands and gives you that blessing as you walk out the door, he is asking that that grace will come over you and help you in your daily walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the scripture says, the love of God. And this is the God, the Father. And why does Paul talk about the love of God? And we have to look to the Apostle John. And when John wrote a story, he wrote a very interesting story. And we have a verse. And this is a verse everybody should know. John 3, 16. Remember this verse? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Isn't that a wonderful expression? God loved us. When John was much older and he wrote a letter in 1 John 4, 19, he wrote this. He said, we love because he first loved us. God loved us. But there's a problem, isn't there? We are unlovable. Why are we unlovable? Because we're spoiled by sin. God can't love anything that's not pure. God can't love unholy things. And you are sinful and you are unholy. How is God going to love something like that that is out of character for God? But he loved us first. What happened? God had a plan for us. His son. We call him his son. He's not literally his son. That's just what we call him. The Lord Jesus Christ came to earth to make people, Christians, holy before God. Jesus redirected the wrath of God that was pointed towards you because you were unholy, you were sinful, and took that wrath and put it on himself. Jesus took the brunt of God's anger towards sin and took it upon himself. But Jesus did something even more than that. Jesus took his goodness, his purity, his holiness, and gave that to you. And so when God looks at you, you are holy, you are pure. You are perfect. Does God love holy, pure, perfect people? Yes. God loves you if you are a Christian. Because Jesus has made you lovable. You are no longer sinful and dirty before God because he has taken that upon himself. Therefore, God will Pour his love on you. There is unlimited love for you. And I have a question for you. Do you know the love of God in your life? And if you're not so sure if God loves you, 
don't you want to know more about the love of God and his love for you? Don't you want to enjoy God's love? Jesus told a story to his disciples. And his disciples were wondering about things. And Jesus took a look at them. And they were struggling, all those people. And he said this in Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That is the love of God as expressed to hurting people. Learn from me. Look into the word of God to see how much God loves you. And so we could spend many sermons learning about the love of God for us. I just want to mention a couple. One is God loved you so much that he has adopted you. You read in Colossians 4, verse 4 and 5, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that's you and me if you're a Christian, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And when he says sons here, he means sons and daughters. We are adopted. You read again in Ephesians 1, 5. We are adopted as we are adopted because we've been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, do you want to learn more about the love of God? How he's adopted you in his family? Those are the things that we know, learn from this passage. So when we say at the end, God's love be on you, those are the kinds of things that you must think about. Now quickly hastening on, we talk about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And we'll say this, that we as Christians, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, can come to possess the grace of Jesus Christ and learn of the love of God. And because we have fellowship in the Holy Spirit, he helps us in our understanding of the scriptures. He opens our minds to understand the personal salvation that God has given us. It's not just a concept sitting out there that I'm reading in a book, but salvation is for me. Salvation is for you, and the Holy Spirit works in your mind and your heart to demonstrate to you that God's love is real for you, that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is for you. And once you understand that concept, the Holy Spirit begins to work in your heart and to demonstrate to you how you can love God in return. 
And what does that mean? You're going to learn to love God in your relationship to him in your prayers and in your relationship to those who are your peers, so to speak, or those who are fellow Christians, because we are of one family. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of God, so we need to get along with those who are in our family. And that's why when Paul wrote the Corinthians, he said these things like live in peace with one another. As we leave in a few minutes, and as you hear the benediction again today, think upon how God wants to bless you. You are going to leave in appreciation of Christ's grace for you. You are going to depart in the sunshine of God's love. You are going to step out in the Spirit's 